We read James chapter 4 in our series on sin and judgment. James 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. Amen. We have been reading and studying how the Apostle James is promoting true wisdom. He's promoting true wisdom and true faith. The wisdom that is manifested is the example, is the evidence of true faith within. This has been his argument from chapter 1, 2, and 3. The problem that James faced, and it is the same problem every church in every place in every generation faces. The problem is that those who assemble as the church, they think that because they enter a church meeting, therefore they are Christians. 
After all, they have not gone to a Hindu temple, they have not gone to a Muslim mosque, they have entered a Christian assembly, in a Christian building, in a church building. Therefore, they think they are Christians. When actually, the true Christians are few among those who are in attendance. This is the argument, this is the explanation, and this is even the confrontation of James the Apostle, telling the people who are hearing and reading these words that they need to understand what a true Christian actually looks like. How does he live? What are his values? What does he say? What is his source of wisdom? If he says he has faith, does he have works? James chapter 2. Does he have evidence of true faith that he claims to have within? In chapter 4, the apostle actually is turning up the heat against those who would be in their comfort and sleep in the sense that they are smug in their Christian life. He turns up the heat with some very strong and stern words against such worldly behavior, such demonic behavior, to live a life that is contradictory to the true gospel. In this chapter, there are people who are fighting and quarreling, and this is their practice. And if they are fighting and quarreling, then how can they be true Christians? In this chapter also, he says that we have double-minded people, sinning people, adulterous people. And if they are this way, defecting from the true God, how can they be true believers? We also have in chapter 4, people who are speaking against brothers. And in the scripture, to speak against means to slander a brother. Also, judging a brother, and by judgment he means hypocritical judgment. Hypocritical, superficial judgment against a brother. When people practice that, it manifests the fact that they do not know the Lord. They are judging the law of God and making God subservient to their judgment, subservient to their wisdom subservient to the lies they speak when they speak slander. Further, he describes people who are boasting in their health and wealth. Yes, health and wealth. At the end of the chapter, verses 13 to 17, those who would presume to be living tomorrow, that is, healthy enough to live tomorrow, wake up in the morning the next day, and even undertake a long journey in order to engage in business and make a profit. They do it based on their own power, their own wisdom, their own goals, their own values, their own methods, instead of if the Lord wills. What is the will of the Lord? This is also a persistent sin in every generation and in every place, and in every nation, every church, to desire health and wealth without desiring to know and do the will of God. But James, when he's being very strong and stern, is not unloving or unkind. He's not ungracious when he does so. 
In fact, his goal is revealed in chapter 5, 19 to 20. Chapter 5, verse 19. James 5, 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is an encouragement to the brethren who would call somebody else in the church to repent because that person needs motivation to bring up the subject to confront the other who is sinning. And therefore, he is the one being encouraged here. The motivation is that the sinner who is in the error of his way would have his soul saved from death and a multitude of sins covered. That should be the motivation of everyone who approaches another in sin. And that is his motivation. The motivation of James is to exhort and admonish his readers to understand the nature of sin, the fact that God will judge that sin, and the loving preacher, the loving pastor, the loving Christian will tell another, wait a minute, sir, that is a sin. Do you recognize that? You should repent of that sin. It's not good to wallow and bask in your sins. You should, in fact, repent of sins. That's what James encourages us to do. Well, that's what he's doing throughout this letter. And especially though some of these words will be biting, some of these words will be harsh, some of these words will be very firm and stern, yet they are necessary because they are necessary to break a stony heart. They are necessary to shake up and jolt the person who is in slumber because he should not be asleep in the comfort of sin. Keeping that in mind, keeping the true heart of the apostle, which is the heart of the Spirit and which is the heart of Christ, it should be ours too. This is the way we should approach this subject. Return now to verse 1. Verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? This is a very important question. Not every time there is a disagreement, not every time there is division, is the reason for it a sinful reason. After all, Christ said in Matthew 10, 34 to 39, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. When he said, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He came to bring division. He came to bring a sword. When his word and righteousness are preached and lived, it will bring conflicts. But that's not a sinful conflict. In this case, though, James is addressing a sinful motive, a sinful reason, a sinful instigation of quarrels and conflicts. And what does he say? Verse 1. Is not the source your pleasures 
that wage war in your members? The source is their pleasures waging war in the members. Pleasures. And by pleasures, he's not talking about the simple pleasures of life by eating and drinking. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the sinful pleasures, the love of the world, the love of the flesh. That's the kind of pleasure he's speaking of here in this context. When our own love of pleasure consumes us, and we're not repenting of it, when it is overwhelming us, consuming us, driving us, controlling us, they wage war. They wage war. There's always a warfare. The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so that you may not do the things that you please. Galatians 5, 16 to 18. There is always a war that must be overcome, that must be victorious. We must be victorious in this war. But the problem, the reason for the war is our sinful pleasures. Not pleasures that are godly and right and pure, but the sinful pleasures. And he has sinful pleasures in mind as he explains in verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. To lust is to have a strong evil desire, whatever that desire may be. In this case, it's a strong evil desire for something that another possesses. So in order to obtain that sinful desire, one commits murder. Murder. Is he speaking of spiritual murder or physical murder? It is very likely he means physical murder. Why? Because he mentions this again, chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. And also, that... Some people have the audacity to say, I am a Christian even though I commit murder, is a reality. It actually happens in the world. People put drug dealing with Christianity. They put adultery with Christianity. They put murder with Christianity. They put pedophilia with Christianity. They put kidnapping with Christianity. They put rape and incest with Christianity. They put drunkenness with Christianity. They put Islam with Christianity, Hinduism with Christianity, atheism with Christianity. People do all kinds of things like that. Evolution with Christianity. But look at 1 Peter. Peter says this cannot be the case. 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter 5. Uh, excuse me, chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, 15. 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16, 4.15. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. Even Peter is combating the idea that anyone could be a Christian murderer, a Christian thief, a Christian evildoer, a Christian troublesome meddler. He's saying you cannot do that. But if it is in the name of Christian, that is, that you are a follower of Christ, in that name you can glorify God. But you cannot glorify God by being a murderer or thief or anything else. They don't go together. And yes, James addresses the same. How could it be? Well, it happens frequently. In many places, in many churches, there are people who think you can be a murderer and a Christian at the same time. Now, we're not talking about a repentant sinner, a repentant murderer, but a murderer who is unrepentant. That's the context, the unrepentant murderer. Further, James 4.2. And you are envious and cannot obtain... So you fight and quarrel. Envy. Envy is a synonym of covetousness. We might also say jealousy. Envy, covetousness, jealousy, greed. We see what someone else has and we really want it. We really want what the other has and so we cause a conflict in order to try to obtain it. But in the midst of trying to obtain what someone else has, we get upset. We become uh, irritated. We become angry. We act in ways that are unchristian, unloving. And what is this? So you fight and quarrel. Fight and quarrel among one another because we can't get what we want. Verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. He means there, you do not have certain things, certain essential things, certain necessary things, certain needs, and even other things that we may desire Why do we not have them? Because we do not ask. Notice that. We do not ask God. Instead of asking God properly, humbly, we are just looking at things horizontally and finding a way to obtain what someone else has. Without Petitioning the Lord without asking the Lord, without humbly asking the Lord, Lord, this is something that I desire. I, need, I want to make sure it's a pure desire. It's a righteous desire. Please answer my prayer. Let me know if this is right or wrong. Show me in Scripture whether this is right or wrong. You do not have because you do not ask. That's one problem. Not asking the Lord but simply finding carnal means to obtain something. Verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
The other error here is asking the Lord, but the Lord does not answer. Asking the Lord, but the Lord does not answer. Why does the Lord not answer favorably? Why does he not bless the request? Because they ask the Lord. He says, because you ask with wrong motives, wrong or evil motives. It's the same as chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The same here, evil motives. The reason what you want to do, what you desire to do with what you're asking the Lord is to spend it on your pleasures. Back to verse 1. He means sinful pleasures. The same in verse 3. Sinful pleasures. Because of a desire to indulge the flesh, therefore the Lord says, I'm going to withhold it from you. I will not answer this prayer. Verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? First, we notice he addresses these people in a Christian church, Christian assembly, in different places. He calls them adulteresses in the plural. Adulteresses. All of them are not women. So why is he calling them adulteresses? Because Spiritually speaking, they are like Israel that was unfaithful to the Lord. The same with these in the church. They are unfaithful to the Lord. When they are consumed with worldly desires, with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, when they are consumed with those sins, They have become unfaithful to the Lord, who is our husband. The Lord is our husband, and therefore, if we pursue sins, we become adulteresses. Then he chides us for our ignorance. Do you not know? Do you not know? We should know, right? But he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? When one is a friend of the world, he is at enmity or hostility at war with God. That's the way the Bible looks at it. There's no other way. We cannot say there's a middle ground a gray area. The moment anyone is a friend with the world, he is in hostility toward God. Hostility. He's fighting, he's angry, he's at war, at combat with God. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. For whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. 
and the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. He also says, it's impossible to combine the true faith with the world. There must be a separation. There can be no friendship. If there's friendship with the world, we are enemies of God. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It doesn't matter what the person claims. The person may claim, I'm a Christian, and it's okay, this certain thing or this certain practice is not a sin. It doesn't matter what he says. It depends on the nature of what he's doing. If he's doing something that's contrary to the scripture, he is living according to the world. He's a friend of the world. Therefore, he is an enemy of God. It doesn't matter if he has a megaphone. It doesn't matter if he shouts loudly, if he's on the rooftop and yelling and screaming all day long saying, I am a Christian. Nobody can deny it. It doesn't matter. He is a friend of the world and an enemy of God. It depends on what he's doing the evidence or the works that are flowing out of his pretended faith. Verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Does the Scripture speak to no purpose? Is Scripture written to be ignored? Is the Scripture written to be neglected? Is the scripture written to be rejected? No. The scripture doesn't speak to no purpose. The words of scripture are there in the Bible for a reason, for a purpose. This is evident from beginning to the end of the Bible. If that's what the scriptures are here to do, to speak to the purposes of God, then what is the purpose of God? Verse 5, He, the Lord, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. There are a couple of, maybe more than two, there's a few ways to understand this verse. For one, commentators have sought to find the exact quotation in the Old Testament, and it is lacking. When actually, James, just as occasionally other apostles, will say the scripture says, but they are speaking generally about more than one passage and a common theme or thread throughout the Old Testament. And this is likely the case with James here in James 4, verse 5. And what would that be? That God has granted to us His Holy Spirit for a very important reason. Jealously desiring the Spirit within us to produce holiness within us. That would be one way to take it as the NASB, New American Standard Bible, renders it. 
The English Standard Version says the following, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This may be a bit more clear, that God is yearning jealously, eagerly, zealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. This would mean that the Lord is working through our spirit. The ESV puts spirit with a small s. So that would mean the human spirit. That God is working eagerly, jealously, to overcome the carnal nature of man, which is also true in the Bible. Another way is the King James Version, KJV. Do do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? According to the King James Version, which is also scripturally sound. That is, other scriptures teach the same doctrine. What would that doctrine be? That is, that God has clearly told us, he did not tell us in vain, that the spirit in man, the natural man, it is a spirit that lusts to envy. That is, our carnal spirit is fleshly and seeks to envy and do sin, which is true. However we take it, all of these are comparable to other scriptural doctrines so that there's no contradiction. But it is very clear, is it not? The Holy Spirit dwells in us to overcome our spirit. However we take this verse. And if that is the case, shouldn't we be overcoming sin day by day? Verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace. He gives more and more grace to us. More and more grace to us to enable us to overcome the flesh. His spirit working with our spirit to overcome the sins that are inherent within us. The greater grace is for the elect. The elect receive this greater grace in order to overcome the deeds of the flesh. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God, this is also a quote, this is more of a direct quote, coming from Proverbs 3.34, Proverbs 3.34, and Psalm 138, verse 6. Psalm 138.6, Proverbs 3.34. God is opposed to the proud. Whoever is proud is in opposition to God. But whoever is humble receives more grace to 
increase in humility. Their grace is given to the humble so that they remain humble and increase in their humbleness by beating down the flesh. Verse 7, if God is going to give grace to the humble, what must be done? Verse 7 explains, submit therefore to God. To be humble is to submit to God. To submit to God means to obey God, do His will, please Him, fear Him. Also, verse 7, to be humble is to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humility and resisting the devil go together. Whoever is cooperating with the devil, whoever is a bedfellow of the devil, then he is a proud man. But the one resisting the devil is a humble man. And when we resist, the devil will flee. Remember when our Lord was in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4? When he was in the wilderness, the devil had his temptations. Our Lord resisted the devil. And after some time, what did the devil do? He left. He fled. He went away. When the devil tries against us, he'll try for some time, but eventually he will flee from us. When in the Lord's Prayer, our Lord prayed, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the same here. God We ask the Lord not to lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the the evil. May we be delivered by resisting the devil. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Sometimes in scripture, such as our passage, there are many exhortations here starting in verse 7, 7 to, uh, 7 to 10, that the Scripture will tell us what we ought to do, will tell us our duty, will tell us our obligation. But the same Scripture sometimes does not tell us how we are able to do it. At other times, it tells us how we are able to do it. In our passage, we are told it is by the grace of God. In verse 6, by the grace of God, we are able to do what he's telling us to do. He's not assuming that we have free will or a good will or enough of the power of man to cooperate with the power of God. He's not speaking of it that way. Therefore, when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, he's not saying do so with your own power. He's saying the grace of God is what will draw you near. But we must draw near. We have the ability or the power by the grace of God. And now verse 8, 7 and 8, we are told what exactly God expects with that grace. 
to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He's not saying the first step is man's, but he is saying man must draw near to God. If we want the nearness of God, then we must draw near to him. Then he reciprocates by drawing near to us. Will he happily come to a polluted, unholy, profane temple? No. When the tabernacle of Moses was built, when the temple of Solomon was built, did not God first make sure that they carried out the prescribed sacrifices to cleanse purify, make holy his holy place, then his Shekinah glory entered the tabernacle, the radiant glory that was a symbol, a representation of his presence in the tabernacle and in the temple. First it had to be cleansed for God to draw near to them. They needed to draw near to God in the way he prescribed And then he drew near to them. And this will also relate to the next clause or sentence. Verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands. Why? As Isaiah says, your hands are full of bloodshed. You do all kinds of evil with your hands. So that's why your hands have to be cleansed. Remove the blood stain of sin from your hands. You sinners. He said, you adulteresses. Now he says, you sinners. He uses this phrase that is quite, quite, um, <clears throat> quite a goad, quite a prick to our conscience. Because we don't like to be called anything with the prefix you. You sinners. You adulteresses. You double-minded. You foolish fellow. Chapter 2, verse 20, he said. But it's necessary. We have to know who we really are in order to resolve it, in order to rectify it, in order to repent We need to know the true nature of sin to get rid of that sin. But if we're never called sinners, then there's no sin to reject. We just eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. There's no sin. The same with purification of hearts. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purification, cleansing, synonyms of us getting rid of those impure qualities that are within us and in our practice. Impure, unclean are terms, ritual terms that signify our spiritual sins, which must be purified. We also see, he said hands, and now he says hearts. Some people think 
In the Old Testament, God's only concerned about the hands, not the heart. And they think in the New Testament, God is only concerned about the heart, not the hands. Both are false. In the Old, he's concerned about the hands and the heart. After all, the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He wants us to love him in the Old Testament with the whole heart. He also wants it in the New Testament, purify your hearts. In the Old Testament, he wanted their hands and their feet and their eyes to be practicing holiness. And the same thing in the New Testament. Right here we have in verse 8, cleanse your hands. Our hands, our ears, our mouths, our eyes eyes should not be practicing sin. In chapter 3, he spoke of the tongue. In the New Testament, James 3, the tongue. The tongue in chapter 3, the hands here in chapter 4, verse 8. God is concerned about both our internal holiness and external holiness. The two have always been the concern of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Further, he calls us double-minded. You double-minded. He said the same in chapter 1, verse 8. If we do not ask in faith, if our hearts are not wholly devoted to the Lord, if we do not have a single heart, an unfeigned heart, an unpretentious heart, if we don't have a sincere heart, if we have double-mindedness, doubts, uncertainties, and we're sometimes with for the Lord and sometimes for the world, sometimes for the things of God and sometimes for the things of the world. That's double-mindedness. That must be purified from within us. If it's purified from within us, then it will show in how we live. Verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. The laughter and the joy he means here is not the godly laughter or godly joy. He's not talking about the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. He would not be criticizing us for having that. He's talking about worldly laughter, worldly joy, carnal laughter, carnal joy. That's what he means, that people think it's okay to indulge the flesh in laughter and joy. But he's saying, no, we must repent. We must be miserable. Who would have thought? Who has ever read? Very few people know in Christian churches that James 4, 9 exists. Why would God ever tell a Christian in the supposed age of grace to be miserable, to mourn, and to weep. Because the way Christianity is portrayed these days is happy-go-lucky. 
people are taught to lollygag with a lollipop. Lollipop, lollygagging Christianity. Everything is sweet and fun. But here he's calling us to repent, calling on us to repent. This is, these are terminologies encouraging us to turn away from sin with godly sorrow. The sorrow of the world produces death, but the sorrow of God or godly sorrow produces salvation without regret. 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. This is the godly sorrow he's trying to develop within us, stir up within us. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Most of the time, the flesh wants the exaltation from men, the praise of men. The flesh wants to please men. All of us, in one way or another, are people pleasers. We are afraid of men. We want to please men. We want their admiration. We want their flattery sometimes. This is what we want. But here he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. What we need is the favor of God. We need God's commendation. We need the Lord to exalt us. If the Lord exalts us, then it's not sinful. But when we are seeking exaltation from men, that's sinful. And that is born of pride. But those who are exalted by the Lord are practicing humility. Verses 11 and 12. 11 and 12 are dealing primarily with slander and hypocritical judgment. Though those terms are not used, hypocrite and slander, those words are not used, this is what James means. He could not be meaning, do not ever say something negative to another brother or about another brother, because he's doing it throughout this whole letter. He would be a hypocrite himself. Did he not just say in verse 8, you sinners, you double-minded? In verse 4, you adulteresses? Therefore, when he says, do not speak against one another, brethren, he means do not slander. And what is slander? Slander is saying falsehoods, saying evil things about another people, other people that are not true. The things you say are false about somebody else. That would be speaking against another. Speak against equals slander. Slander is saying things false about another. Saying true things about another is not wrong, like he's doing here, like the Bible does throughout, from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible speaks against, in a sense, against Cain, but it's not slander. Cain was a murderer, Genesis chapter 4. In, Gen- in Revelation chapter 2, the Bible says negative things or quote-unquote speaks against the Nicolaitans. 
It speaks against the Jews. It speaks against Jezebel, the woman Jezebel. Revelation chapter 2, chapters 2 and 3. But those negative statements are not slander because whatever the Lord says about these individuals is true. James, therefore, when he says speak against, he's talking about slander, uh, backbiting, being divisive, backstabbing. He's thinking and, and speaking of things of that nature. And people do it because they have their own carnal wisdom, which is what he explained in chapter 3. This we should not be doing against one another. That's the reason why whenever we speak about somebody else, we better make sure we know what we're talking about. We better make sure we have all the details correct. We have our ducks in a row. We're not embellishing anything. We're not making it up and lying about somebody else. It ought to be true. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. Judging a brother, he's talking about unjust judgment or hypocritical judgment against a brother. Hypocritical judgment, you have a log in your eye and you're telling your brother, let me take a speck out of your eye. Matthew 7, 1 to 6 speaks against that. Jesus said in Matthew 7, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So first resolve your own sins and then you go help somebody else. Here, when they judge their brother hypocritically or unjustifiably, they speak against the law. The law says not to do it, but they are doing it. Therefore, they are against the law, the law of God. And if they are against the law of God, then they are judging the law of God. The law of God is not good. My view is good. God's law is evil. And that's evident by their actions. Though they claim to be in harmony with Scripture, it's their actions that weigh heavier than their words. Actions speak louder than words, right? That's a biblical concept. James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. We, if we act contrary to the law of God, we are a judge of the law of God. Meaning we're condemning it, contradicting it, saying we are telling the truth, the law of God is telling a lie. That's why we always must Conform the way we speak, the way we live, our values, according to Scripture. Always ask, what does the Scripture say? Because if we don't do it according to Scripture, we are a judge of Scripture. And that's dangerous to put ourselves in that position. Why? Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. That's not us. That one lawgiver and judge 
is not any one of us, but it is the Lord, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? All we are are men, finite men, men living to be 70 or 80 years old. We did not create the world. We're not the judge of the world. We did not create the world. We did not redeem the world. We have nothing to do with that. We are only participants by the grace of God in small ways. But he is the ultimate lawgiver and judge, able to save and destroy. Yes, he's able to destroy. Speaking of judgment, he will destroy. Further, verses 13 to 17. Here he preaches against the pride or arrogance of wisdom, ability, and desires to obtain. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Come now. He's appealing. This is a way to appeal. Come here for a minute. That's the way he's speaking. Come here for a minute. Let me tell you something. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city. The plans are theirs. The locations, the destinies, destinations are theirs to such and such a city. The purpose is there. Spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. The duration and the purpose, their activities there, and their goal to make a profit. Is there innately anything wrong with making a plan for today or tomorrow? No. Is there anything wrong with traveling to a city? No. To spend a year there? No. Is there anything wrong with engaging in business? No. Is there anything wrong in making a profit? No. That's not his point. His point is they want to do all of these things devoid of the wisdom of God, devoid of the will of God, devoid of a humble dependence upon God. That's his point. Because of what he says in 14. Also notice in the quote in verse 13, nothing there is said of the Lord. The Lord's word, the Lord's will, the Lord himself, nothing is said in verse 13. He's quoting the people who want to do this arrogantly. They want to do this. So 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. That's true. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth, the scripture says. We cannot boast about what's going to happen tomorrow, because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Boast meaning, boasting, devoid of the Lord, devoid of His will, devoid of His word, just doing whatever you feel like doing, making your own plans. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Yes, we're like vapors. Here today, gone tomorrow. We don't even know if we're going to live tomorrow. 
Yes, many people die. Suddenly, unexpectedly, they die. And in that sense, we are vapors compared to the Lord who is eternal. 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. We ought to say, if the Lord wills. May the will of the Lord be done, is what we should say. We should also ask, Lord, what is your will? If the Lord wills. Though there is human responsibility, human activity, human thinking, human planning, nothing is a sin like that. The human agency involved with accomplishing things in and of itself is not the sinful part. It is the motive. It's what's happening when the person says he's going to do it without consideration of the Lord's will. If the Lord's will, if the Lord wills, we shall live. There's the health. We shall live. Because if there is ill health or sudden death, and that would be because of some health crisis that produces sudden death, then we won't live. But he says, we shall live. If the Lord wills, we shall live. That's the health. And then the wealth. And also do this or that. That's engaging in business, making a profit. This or that. But the health and wealth we have are not ours to control. Ultimately, we don't have control. We do the best we can with the wisdom of God. But then we have to say, if the Lord wills. 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. On the surface of it, verse 13 does not look like it's a very serious sin. One might say, well, I have to eat. I have to provide for my family. So what's wrong with verse 13? The, wrong, the problem with verse 13 is it has nothing to do with God. It's not dependent upon the will of God. That's the problem. And when we are not dependent upon the Lord, then it's boasting, it's arrogance, and evil. It's boasting, arrogance, and evil, according to 16. Does the Lord want us to continue in boasting, empty boasting, arrogance, and evil? No. He wants us to repent. 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. To one who knows the right thing to do. When we read Scripture, we know the right thing to do. Also, our consciences tell us the right thing to do. We have the law of God on the heart, and we have the law of God in print. Both are telling us the right thing to do. 
when we know the right thing to do and we do not do it, look there. He's not saying, he says, the right thing to do does not do. He took away our empty claims of the heart. Well, my heart's right. So why are you complaining, James, apostle? My heart's right. Why are you complaining? Well, I, say, I have faith, James, apostle. I have faith. So why are you complaining? Why are you criticizing me? Because James, like he said in chapter 1, do not be merely hearers of the word, but doers. Same thing here. To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it. The issue is, do you have evidence of true faith? You must do it, and that will show that your claim to faith is a valid claim when we see fruit. If we don't see fruit, then there's no true faith. And to the one who doesn't do it, it is sin. If we read this phrase casually, superficially, wrongly, to him it is sin, it's not saying it's only a sin for that person, but it's not a sin for me. He doesn't mean it that way. What he means is, it's a sin reckoned to him. That is, it's, he's going to be held accountable for the sin that he's not <clears throat> repenting of. He's committing a sin, and God will hold him accountable. He will judge him. To him, it is sin. And actually, this has to do with all of us anyways. Every one of us, to one degree or another, we know the right thing to do. But do we always do it? No. So therefore, it's a sin reckoned to each of us whenever we don't do what we know to be right. Therefore, let that sin not remain against us. Let's repent. Let's do according to verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let's do that and receive God's forgiveness. God does forgive. But he calls us to be aware of our sin to avert the judgment of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.